Hello, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? Um, <laughs> I am doing compatible with my emotional profile. That's wonderful to hear. I'm cringing already, so that's how I'm doing. I'm feeling actually pretty yum yum, Rachel, but I'm not feeling yum yum enough to do this. Just us two. This is a bold precedent I'm now. I'm not good enough. When you're not good enough for the Red Angel episode of Star Trek Discovery. We are joined for this one, Rachel, by a guest. Now, you're looking surprised, Rachel. You're saying, Ryan, the Yum Yum podcast, don't do guests. Well, we haven't done guests until now. How You do guests how, on Spit and Polish. How could you do this, Ryan? The betrayal is real. Well, it's because this episode of Star Trek Discovery is just so jam-packed. So full on. We need that help. We I, need I to do trap recognize an, that we need help. We need to trap a time traveling angel, sit them down, and interrogate them about the plot of this episode of Star Trek Discovery. We are joined. Poppy! We are joined by Poppy. We are joined by Alan from Chats, a television podcast. Hello, Alan. Hello, Ryan and Rachel. It is I, Alan from the Chats Pod. I love Star Trek. How are you? Uh, I'm well. I'm very well. I, I'm excited to talk about one of the best shows of the last five years. Um, that's not true. I, I am legitimately hyped to talk about the show because I have uh, a similar history to it with y'all. And uh, yeah, this episode was a lot, to say the very least. So, How about you inform us and our lovely listeners of your podcast and what you do on there? Yeah, so Chats a Television Podcast. That's um, C H A T Z colon a television podcast. We, uh, my friend Majan and I, have been friends since uh, middle school, and we watch a lot of television, and we and we also listen to a lot of podcasts. So we figured we would start uh, almost five years ago to the day. We've been talking about TV shows, two episodes a week, mostly cult classics, sometimes more popular stuff, and we like to get into like some comedy here, some criticism. Uh, we do bits, we do all the good stuff. Um, but yeah, it's always been about two, approximately two episodes of TV a week. We watch them, we talk about them, we have a great time. What TV shows have you guys covered and are currently talking about? Uh, well, yeah, we've hit quite a wide swath. We got our, we cut our teeth on uh, Farscape, the Australian classic, which I know will appeal to you, mm. you too. Um, well, I've also become mm. a smeghead in the intervening years since since Farscape. Uh, we watched Babylon 5, which I believe is how Ryan discovered the podcast, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. I I discovered you guys because you guys were currently at the time when I was finding you doing Babylon 5, one of my most beloved sci-fi shows, equal to Star Trek to me. Maybe, maybe Discovery, more. right. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. So you guys have... Covered interestingly, you guys don't just like just with what you said, sci-fi. But you you guys cover kind of like a large swath of things. So you've done like comedy shows, you've done uh, whatever you wanted to define Brian Fuller's shows as. You've <laughs> done you've done an Aaron Sorkin show, uh, whatever you wanted to define the newsroom as a comedy as well. I guess I don't know. Um, it's a lot of you've stuff done that I think about it. It's a lot of stuff that that crosses genre because like yeah, Avatar crosses between mm. comedy and and drama, and so does the newsroom, and so does pushing daisies, like you said. So, uh, you know, the prisoner, the prisoner, which <laughs> is sometimes a comedy, but is all the time brilliant. So, yeah, um, and British, <laughs> and very and highly British, um, as British as it gets. Yeah, and you did Pride and Prejudice at one point as well. So, 
There's a little something for everyone. And at the moment, you're doing uh, one of the, the, I guess you could say, one of the definitive cult classic uh, comedy sitcom shows within the last 10 years. Yeah, we just, um, we are in the middle of Better Better Off Ted. Sorry to jump ahead of you there. Uh, Better Off Ted, the show that every TV critic thinks is the best show ever. And it's pretty good. It's pretty enjoyable. It's got a lot to talk about. It's from like 10 years ago, and we have been diving into what what is television from 10 years ago about what made it so good why is it remembered so fondly i understand what you're going through i know what it's like to see the ugly face of discrimination you do yes i do when i was 16 i was five foot nine and stunning i mean off the charts gorgeous at school i was like a swan among ugly ducklings all the other girls hated me and like our light sensors are doing to you, totally ignored me. If it wasn't for the modeling contracts and the comfort of college boys, I don't know if I would have made it. Wow. We are doing our Star Trek Discovery rewatch. So for the people listening, we are going to be talking about Star Trek Discovery. There will be spoilers for uh, Star Trek Discovery. So if you are not up to date with Star Trek Discovery, that's on you. We have, we're telling you now, we're warning you now. Yes, I'm going to mention stuff from season three, people. The gloves are off. The gloves, they've been taken off. One of the great things about Star Trek Discovery is that I actually found your podcast, Alan, because of Star Trek Discovery. When season two aired, I was had a lot of feelings about it. And one of the feelings I had about it was, I need to articulate these feelings into something meaningful outside of just talking to Rachel for hours and hours and hours and hours late into the night about all these things in the show. And I wanted to go and start a podcast about it, but I never had listened to any breakdowns of episodes and and TV podcasts, mainly film podcasts and audio dramas and all that. So I was like, I should listen to a TV podcast. But how about I listen to one that isn't about Star Trek Discovery, because I don't want to get infected with other people's opinions. I'll listen to just any TV podcast. Oh, I know. I'll find one of a show I like. Oh, Babylon 5. And you guys are like the first one that popped up that was actively covering it while all the other ones were like they finished it several years ago so i wanted to kind of listen to a show that was actively covering it kind of blossomed into a very great friendship and that's in part because of star trek discovery so as much smack as i do talk about discovery it has its positive benefits and this is a surprisingly weird one that it has bestowed upon the world but it's there nonetheless so there's that I'm glad it looped back around I'm glad it looped back to to finding something you like and enjoying hopefully uh, so be- beauty can come from Star Trek Discovery I think well Star Trek Discovery teaches us what true friendship is <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> which is not watching Star Trek Discovery <laughs> Or is it, Alan? Because we are going to be talking about people, The Red Angel, episode 10 of season 2. The description on IMDb goes as such. Burnham is stunned when she learns her ties to section 31 run deeper than she ever fathomed. Armed with the identity of the Red Angel, the USS Discovery goes to work on its most critical mission to date. Rachel? What did you think of The Red Angel as an episode when it initially aired? And how do you feel about it now? I thought it was awful, and I still think that it's awful. 
What about it was awful upon the original watching experience of it? Because this is one of those ones where, on the you know, we're watching it week to week, there's this giant picture that we don't see fully, but this one offers up a big puzzle piece there, the identity of the Red Angel, and then at the end, the real identity of the Red Angel. So this one is one that you could say is, instead of turning out more questions is actually answering some. So why didn't you like it the first time? It's hard to encapsulate, but I think a lot of it goes back to how they fail Mm. to show, (laughs) not tell. And every scene felt like they were just telling me and they were also telling me how to feel about what they were telling me. Oh. But they were pretending that they weren't doing melodrama for some reason. Well, how they how do they do that? When you say when you say they pretend like they're not, what is that? What does that actually look like to you? I think Oh. And like in this episode, what does that look like to you? Maybe it's just because I think they're so pretentious that I'm reading that into it. Because I can't think of any evidence from the show that actually supports that they don't think that they're doing it. Mm. Because it could just be a straight faced. But I think they think that they're being dramatic, mm. not melodramatic. They think that they've built up these characters enough that it's more about them than it is the emotion. And for mm. me, it's too much about the emotion and the the drama of the situation than the performances, than the characters. Yeah. And their role and them having agency within it. It's, we need to hit this beat. Mm. We need to do this thing. So we're going to have the characters say this. Yeah, your your main thing is they do a lot of telling and not a lot of showing. Uh, I remembered when I first watched this episode, I thought little of it. It was one where it was sensory overload. All I remember was that... It genuinely took me by surprise at the end with the reveal of the angel. Now knowing the full picture of that reveal, that doesn't hit the same on the rewatch because the actual thing is, yes, Michael's mother is a red angel, but she's not the red angel because the red angel is actually Michael. So it's that classic... We said to you, we the see the original way of watching it was ah you thought Michael was going to be the Red Angel, didn't you? Actually, twist, it's her mother. You didn't see that one coming. But then if you see the full picture, it's ah you thought it was Michael, didn't you? Actually, the twist is it's Michael's mother. Actually, the twist is it's still Michael. Actually, the twist is it's the suit that Michael wears. Like they try to make the distinction that like it's the thing, it's the thing that she put. Like the time travel suit is the angel, and it's like just oh, I'm getting a headache <sighs> thinking about it. Oh. God. Yes, and but control isn't control. Control isn't AI from the future, but control infects control. But they don't admit that control infects control because they've got to leave a twist for later. Yeah, it's very confusing. Mm. And so I got sensory overload that first time, but I didn't hate it because there was that thing of, oh, this genuinely took me by surprise. Because obviously I thought the Red Angel was Michael, not just because she's the main character, but because the showrunners uh, love Faith 
and who is one of the most famous angels, I think Archangel, an Angel Mi- Michael. Michael. Oh. I think there might be. I think mm-hmm. we watched a film with John Travolta where Cold he- Michael, yeah. And the only other person that I legitimately thought, if I thought that twist route of or the picking angels would be the twist that I wish that they did was it was the good Lorker because his name was Gabriel. That's like the only. Oh sure. Right? You held out hope for Jason Isaacs. I'm for a so stupid long. person who thinks that for some reason that we will ever see the good Lorca again and not the fact that they just said, well, no one can survive in that universe and that means that we're never going to see Jason Isaacs again. I was stupid and thought that we would at some point, but we're never going to. But I didn't like this episode on this rewatch, but also I didn't hate it because I understood what was happening plot wise, but emotion wise. I didn't understand. The emotions that this episode wanted me to comprehend, feel, and understand, I didn't understand that, but I understood the minutia of the actual plot beats happening and how it tied into other episodes. At least I could comprehend it more so than some episodes, but emotion-wise, I was completely lost and barren to this episode. I was watching so many emotional scenes, and I was thinking to myself, I don't know why this character's crying right now. Or yeah. I didn't know that this character even knew this other character. Yeah. Have they even talked before? And and or who is this character? Just like plain old who is this person that's on screen right now talking? I don't know who Paul is anymore. The- I don't know who Nan is as a character. I don't sometimes I don't even know who their version of Spock is. It's like, should I know who Spock is outside of the original series? Or should I know who this version of Spock is? Because if that's the case, I don't know who Spock is. I know who the original series Spock is. Yeah. But I don't know who this Spock is. Um and that's what I felt throughout the episode. Alan, how about you tell us your relationship with Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery, and this episode? I had not watched a lot of Star Trek when I was younger. I had dipped my toe in a couple episodes of TNG that I mostly forgot about. I've watched some of the fan favorites. Um, and my thing was always that I wanted to watch one as it was coming out because that's part of the uh, that's part of the fun with with watching a Star Trek show is like getting to watch it yeah. week to week. And, you know, they a lot of people love to binge these shows, but it's a lot like they go mm. on for a long time because they're trying to get syndicated. Um, so I was like, I heard about Discovery in 2017 and I said, oh man, here we go. Finally, in my adult life, I can watch the Star Trek as it's coming out. And I had, and it was going to be made by Brian Fuller. Yeah. And I, I hadn't watched Pushing Daisies at the time or Hannibal, but now I'm like, yeah, Brian Fuller, like really talented. And then they're like, oh, the production got really goofy and he's kind of not on it except by name anymore. And then it turns out it's a prequel to all of them. And then it turns out that you look at it and that first episode, that 90 minute battle of binary stars is this like CG festival of just emotion. Like you said, Ryan, earlier emotions that you, you under, you, I know I'm supposed to be sad right now, but I don't feel sad. And, Mm. you know, I had hoped watching it through that, like, okay, it'll get better. Like every, everyone says this. I'm sure you've seen disco fans that say this after, after one or two seasons, it's going to get good. TNG didn't start good. At the very least, mm-hmm. TNG started interesting. Uh, the show like had some cool ideas. The whole like with the the Klingon war stuff, kind of cool. Uh, Mirror Universe, kind of cool. Okay, we get into season two, mm. and you and I have talked about this, Ryan. Season two sets itself up, up brilliantly because they say it's 2018. We want to do an episode episodic series. We're not doing your daddy Star Trek where each episode self contained. We're telling a long story, and yeah. the way we're setting it up is going to be all these red signals. Do they kind of do that? Sort of. But as you guys talked about, like, they give up on that very quickly. And then now I, I, 
you get by the by like episode six or seven, I think, of the season. I remember watching it week to week and being like, "Ugh, I this is dumb. This show has completely jumped the shark. I don't even care anymore." But I'm gonna stick with it. And then I finished season two and completely abandoned the show. Have not touched season three. Don't really plan to at this point, honestly. I think I think the audience has to have a satisfying experience of the season. I think they have to feel it's come full circle and that they've had an arc. I haven't been to as many funerals as you, Rachel. So maybe you can tell me this, but at funerals. Does, like, every fucking person get to give a eulogy? Because at this one, <laughs> everyone's giving a eulogy for... No. Paul no. gives... The most egregious to me Should was... Should not be like that. The most egregious to me was Paul Stamets giving a eulogy, because it... I, I said to myself, like, yeah, they've said some lines of dialogue to one another, but mainly, like, him and Arium, but mainly it was like, I've discovered this thing. Arium, could you elaborate on that? And... I never got the feeling that did these two characters have a relationship? And if so, did they have enough of a one for Paul to have a teary-eyed eulogy? No. He doesn't even work on the bridge, let alone have enough of a dynamic to justify it. But meanwhile, Detma, the redhead lady with the augmentation, makes sense. She has history with Arium, yeah. She has history with Arium. She works with her daily. They both, uh, you know... um, have augmentations and all that. And then the other character who, surprisingly, I didn't notice in the scene, and maybe she was there, which is, where was Oho, the uh, other woman who drives the ship, who was always hanging out with Arium? Even in Arium's memories, Oho was always there, but she didn't get a eulogy because, well, we gave it to Detma. We already gave it to one of the minor characters, so we have to give it to Paul because he's one of the main characters. We also gave one to Saru and one to Michael, so we can't give one, you know, we, we met we met a quota there. And it's fair, because there's too many people talking, but it's like, all the people talking, except for one of them, have nothing to say. Alan, yes. I've got to ask you something about Star Trek Discovery. Hit me with it. You said that you hadn't really watched too much Star Trek, and you were kind of holding off because you wanted to see a star- new Star Trek show that came out week to week, and I, yeah. I 100% understand that mentality. Like, I've always wished that I was, you know old enough to have lived in that era in which these great Star Trek shows aired and I was able to see them. Enterprise was the closest, but still I was like too young and it was on late. Um, So you're saying you don't have the greatest history and relationship with Star Trek in general. Does Star Trek Discovery do a good job to you as someone who doesn't have the greatest history with the series and the franchise? Does it do a good job to you of introducing newcomers to this franchise and this world? Uh, no. No, 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 no. It's... you. I think you would be served by this being your first Trek show. Because if you're going into it and you're like, hey, this is just a cool serialized uh, science fiction show. It's got some wacky ideas and all of the characters are cardboard paper. Like, if you are more into the world building and the, and the weird lore and the backstory stuff, you might have a good time with this overall series. If you don't care about character development or acting or effects or uh, linear plot. Um, I, I believe you mean if you don't care about it being good by most measurable standards. Yeah, pretty much. It's just... They don't act like Fun people. Fun fact, Alan said he would be the positive one for this episode, I by the way. I am still ready to... That's what I'm saying. I'm saying this is... this. I understand why people like this show. They don't come to it for Star Trek. They're, they they sat out and said, we're making a linear narrative show. You come to it to watch it week to week and, and like learn the story. You're not coming to it yeah. for character arcs or for touching emotional moments or any of that. But 
But that's but what he's trying to do. Then why is yeah. most of this episode big emotional moments and that we are meant hugs. to be caring about? It's yeah, it's like they 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 trying to have their cake and eat it too. Because the truth of the matter that most smart people know is you can't just have plot without character. That's how you get a lot of modern dramas. Is they're just like oh whatever the characters don't matter. Like I don't I, I just want mm. stuff to happen. I want de- nerds to debate this part forever, which is what Discovery feels like. It was like built in a lab for that. Like we're just gonna debate lore and what the mechanics of the red angel are and it's like no but who are the characters who are engaging with that technology why are they engaging with it there's like a good 30 minute span of this episode because the beginning is yeah you know the funeral and all that stuff but then it's just like they just drop the red angel like tilly just comes into the room is like guys i found the red angel it is you michael and she's like, what, me? And she's like, yes, you are the person. It's just like vomiting exposition at you as if you didn't have a whole season to do this. And you're suddenly like, oh, crap, we have to answer so many questions right now. Just have them tell Michael. Like, why is it like this? There's two things that completely undercut everything. They put in comedy in the weirdest of moments. So I don't know if this is supposed to be taken seriously because that whole scene should be the dramatic sting, right? Of Michael, you're the angel. But before that happens, we have a little fucking comedy set with Tilly where she's like, oh, sorry about that, Admiral. The doors, they open on their own. That's kind of silly. Boom, 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 boom. And people like doing that comedy thing where they have the shots of the other characters and they're just smirking at one another like, oh boy, Tilly's a lot. Oh boy. And the other thing that they do that really undercuts a lot of this is the comedy undercuts it a lot because there's lots of moments in which it's like, is this supposed to be taken seriously? But then Spock will end the scene with a zinger. Were you to perish, I would be charged with killing a Starfleet officer again. It would therefore be ideal if you survived. Such a way with words, Spock. And, but then the other one is lampshading. They lampshade everything so hard. They do the old, Michael, you have the penchant for being at the center of everything. Blah, blah, blah. Do they stop doing that? No, they double down on it. But since it's okay because they pointed at it and said, there it is. And so it's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to take any of this with a grain of salt or not, or if I'm supposed to not take it seriously because the show says, look how stupid this thing is. Now watch us proceed to do the stupid thing, and here's a joke for you. Is this is the revelation that Michael's the Red Angel supposed to be dramatic, or is it supposed to just be like, whatever? Because that's how they play it off. It's just like, oh, well, whatever. But Ryan, they have an I know moment yes. to reference Star Wars, so you know. Oh, yes, the, the moment where Ash Tyler's like, you know, I love you kind of deal, and she's like, I know. And it's like, okay, we're Star Wars now, are we? Fine enough. But to go back to the funeral scene for a moment. Alan, you jumped into this episode um, just willy-nilly, but so you would be completely emotionally vacant and lost during that uh, funeral scene in which they're commemorating this character? Excuse me, but I've watched the whole season and I was too. That's what I was going to ask. You guys were too, right? Okay, I'm not like I know how to react to people being sad. I understand that emotion. And the the one that really got me, the funeral definitely I'm like, okay, this character died. I know if I watched last at least last episode, I would understand why her dying was a big deal. But they showed like the pre the previously on like I I remember the plot uh, with control and all that. But the one that really got me where I was like, this is not working and it's not on the fault of the actors. I really think it's the script is when the start the section 31 guy tells Burnham that he's the reason her parents died. That's gigantic. That is supposed to be the like 
tears streaming down your face moment. And Sonny Martin Green, really, she does her best with the material, but there's nothing there. I felt absolutely nothing at this moment when he's like, me, I'm literally the reason your parents died. All of your, your like, history and your history with Starfleet is a lie that I I made. And she's crying, and I'm just like, this isn't working. It's not. He's, he, Rachel's laughing in tears. And I, I just want to end the funeral discussion with one thing. Saru sang, and it was really funny. This is a song of remembrance for Ariel. And this moment here, they've been playing it out for the season of George O's like, you killed Michael's parents and I'm going to blackmail you with this and all this. And that leads the audience in that, that area of, oh, he must have done something really evil. But then you see the actual scene and... I know that he did, he fucked up, but I kind of felt bad for him because he genuinely felt bad for letting her parents die because he was young and arrogant and didn't do his job properly. Yet also, I understand why Michael's angry because she's made her whole entire life built upon this complex that she's the reason her parents got killed. But at the same time in the scene, it doesn't work for me because he is genuinely remorseful and he did not actively kill her parents. It was a slip up that could have happened to anyone. And this is in a show in which Michael has made far greater slip ups and mistakes that have led to intergalactic wars. So in the grand scheme of things, who cares if <laughs> Leland accidentally got tracked when stealing a time crystal? And the thing too that is annoying is Michael's parents didn't they weren't just innocent civilians they were active agents they died in the line of duty and it's like i get that that's a sad thing and all and it's terrible but it's like i don't know it's that weird disconnect there where it's like a policeman gets shot on the street he went to a dangerous area i'm not gonna like demand that the police chief get hung up on the streets because he sent him there because like i don't know it's a weird disconnect there in that whole entire scene and like you said, Alan, it's like they're trying their best, but it's not just the dialogue. It's just the way that the power dynamic is structured because also the dynamic is structured where, well, Michael's going to be right and she gets to punch him and say, that's yeah. for my mom and that's for my dad. <laughs> it's like, okay. And then speaking of, speaking of like, what is this Spock? I know this is a younger Spock or whatever, <laughs> but him being like, I wish I had seen you punch him. Like, what? Spock? No, that's not. <laughs> what are you saying? It's something Spock says. But he uses extraneous phrases. That's that makes him Spock because he he uses extra words. In he refuses to say the word personality in this episode, and it annoyed the fuck out of me for some reason. So there's there's two things that really annoyed and distracted me in that scene because it's meant to be about like that it's that moment where she finds out and her identity is sent into Mm. turmoil and i guess that's why hugh's stuff is in this episode too but we'll obviously get to that in the huda but for me I got hung up on the details, (laughs) which is that, okay, this was about 20 years ago, right? Yeah. And now he's the head of Section 31. 
I think. They just keep referring to him as, like, the captain of this ship. Like, yeah. They, they treat him like, oh, he's just because a captain. That, the, the admirals are in charge of the Section 31, but... But he's, he, our, he's, he's our face. He's the face of he's it. He's effectively the leader. Yes. Right. From our audience perspective, yes. And 20 years ago doesn't feel like long enough for him to have been in charge of a project developing time travel. And fuck up so bad that it costs the lives of the people who actually figured out the make, technology. They make it feel like he's in charge, even though they are trying to say that he was just the person who had to get the time crystal. Mm. But they make him responsible for them staying there. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that didn't realize that he was being tracked. Yeah. So they've made it his responsibility without him being the one in charge, but they treat him like he was the one in charge because the one in charge would be the one that was responsible. Well, Rachel, he's still responsible because he was young and reckless, and yes. he didn't he didn't cover his trail. He's, he didn't cover his trail well enough. My my, they they tell me that they I t- know that part, but it doesn't make sense to me, and it doesn't feel like it's a good enough reason. What I don't understand is this thing that I keep mentioning, Section 31, Alan, in yep. Deep Space, they were introduced in Deep Space Nine, and they are very threatening in that show. Like, they do stuff, sure, that may be helpful, but overall, they're intimidating. They grab an officer um, while he's still asleep and throw him in a holodeck situation and fuck with him just to test his loyalty. That's the type of people they are. And that's for the greater good. We've seen these villains in TV shows and movies that operate in that logic of, I do these duplicitous, shady, evil things for what I consider to be a greater good. Babylon 5 did that a lot with characters, right? Mr. Bester, that's what he did. He thinks he's operating in a greater good, but he's also an evil little shit. I don't understand why Section 31 in this show, they're so nuded, because to me, wouldn't it feed into the, they operate in the grey areas if he didn't accidentally get them killed, but it was a situation in which he decided, as a Section 31 officer, that they had to die to make this, whatever, like these dominoes fall into place, that cold logic there, that very Lorca-type logic of, well... For the greater good, these people had to be sacrificed. And I'm sorry about that, Michael. I, I, I liked your mum, but she if had to plan... be sacrificed. But instead it's, whoopsie, I spilt milk and your parents died. <laughs> if the plan was kind of more what happened, where the plan was to make the Klingons think that the suit and the time crystal were destroyed in the explosion mm. and something went wrong... Yeah. And they they weren't meant to actually die. They were meant to fake their deaths. Mm. Then that would feel like it made more sense. But I do have another nitpick that I want to bring up. Yeah. They bring up a really cool idea in that scene. And Which it is... goes nowhere. Yeah. Alan, do you know what I'm talking about? But which part are you talking about? So the conversation where... Um, Leland, Leland and, Michael. and Michael, and he's explaining why her parents were investigating time travel. Oh, yes. The idea that 
technology has advanced because tech um time interference the only reason that we've gotten this advanced is because people have been meddling in time with technology we've been given technology that's far ahead of us that's a great idea do they ever explore it no no I, and it would fit really neatly in if they went back to that in season 3 but they don't because they reference a lot like the the time wars essentially which is again for people like Alan and you who have not seen Star Trek Enterprise the phrase there have been time wars means absolutely nothing because they never <laughs> it explain sounds fake. it it sounds like a parody they they just, the temporal the temporal cold war yeah it doesn't mean anything to you cuz you haven't seen enterprise i have it means something to me but what does that mean to you here's a fun fact guys rachel's made this comment about oh there's this idea that Leland throws out there that says this, and they never explore it, Alan. Here's what it is, though. In Star Trek Voyager, there's a double-parter in which that literally happens. They have to go back to the 1990s because Ed Begley Jr. has future technology he shouldn't have, and he advances the human race to a degree that it shouldn't be. So they have to go back in time and stop him from doing that. That's what that's a reference to. But again, what does that matter in this episode, that they made a reference to a, a double parter of Star Trek Voyager from 1997. What does that matter to this 2018 Star Trek Discovery show? Outside of a person like me knows what that reference is, but what does that matter to this singular episode? Other than they wasted time with dialogue to explain why Michael's parents were working on a time suit, other than why wouldn't you be trying to work on time travel technology at all? Like, if you're a science like, species or whatever, like the humans are, wouldn't you just always try to be working on time travel at some point? Wouldn't you? We found ourselves in a temporal arms race, so to gain a strategic advantage, we developed the Daedalus Project. It's ours. Nan takes Michael aside so that the plot has a moment in which it can stop going anywhere. To tell her that she was right? Just, your eulogy, you were right. Did you notice that a lot of scenes ended with a character saying that the scene was written well? Or recap. <laughs> did no, Did you? No, no. The recap's always happening. But did you guys notice yeah. that there's that scene with her and Michael where they just go, I didn't expect this conversation to happen as naturally and as successfully as it did. I didn't expect that either, Michael. But Spock. I'm glad that this conversation has developed really well. Me too, my, uh, me too Spock, Spock. has the exact same thing with her later. Yeah, and... Did you guys notice that that's happening throughout the entire episode? Why is that, Alan? Why do you think that's there? I think it's, it's in part a lack of confidence on the writers to just let the show be itself and exist. It like feels like they don't have enough script or something, and they have to spend a lot of time doing the whole funeral eulogy or having everybody comment on the last scene and say, wow, that was a really good point that you made. It's it's a sh- If I'm to, to try to defend the show, it's them trying to be like, the characters have interiority. They think about what you're thinking about. They're in the show they exist but it's just really frustrating it feels like a huge waste of of, of screen time in this 45 minute episode you're so much of it is wasted on being like yeah that was pretty good huh yeah anyways (laughs) you were right i i agree with what you said like why what i love how optimistic you are because i'm at this point where i just see it as the writers are just have so lack of faith of the audience understanding that that scene meant something, so they just have to tell us via the characters. The characters have to say out loud, that scene was important and meaningful, and the audience who just nods and goes, that was important and meaningful, because the characters said so. So now I know that that was important and meaningful. 
Instead of us feeling it ourselves and taking away something from the scene of our own, we are just delivered the information. Here you go. Alan, instead of you just taking away from that scene a nice bagel, I'm forcing the bagel down your throat. There's a bagel for you. That's How that's... was the bagel? Did you like the bagel? Did you like Why it? Not? It was good, wasn't it? <laughs> I, that, that Narn scene is, a, is incredible to me because, Alan, you've watched the show. You know who Narn is. She says yum yum. It's, it's the reason we made the show. Um, you see her in this episode, she comes in, you saw the flashback where she killed Arium, and they say it in the episode. What did you feel when Nan just walks up and has this conversation? What did you feel? Because this is a show not about thinking, but feeling. Unlike old Star Trek, this isn't about thinking about heady themes, it's about feeling them. How did you feel? I mean... I I think I felt I mean hey the thumbnail for this episode on IMDb is uh is Burnham and Ash Tyler in a in a deep romantic embrace. Mm. So you know this is an episode about intense romantic feelings. Oh yeah. Um I would love if this show if the show wants me to care about its side characters then give them something to do other than react to the plot. Because if you gave me a like non episode, I'd be super into it. I would be like okay, I I, I don't need a lot to care about people. It's not hard. Empathy isn't that hard. A lot of people think it is. It's not. Mm-hmm. Just give me something. Tell me who she is. Tell me what she feels about Starfleet. Give me her interiority and don't just tell me she walked up to Burnham and said, wow, that thing you said was good. That doesn't tell me anything about her other than she agrees with the protagonist. I'm frustrated is what I felt. You covered, you've covered. you covered a lot of shows on, on your pod and there have definitely been shows in which very minor side characters don't get a whole episode dedicated to them, and yet when they have moments like this, say, you still feel for something of that character. How come that can happen and it doesn't happen here? Like, there's many characters in Babylon 5 that are side characters that you may not even remember their names of, but they have their little moments like this in an episode, and yet it makes something impactful happen. Why can that happen in other shows and not this one? That's a good question. Why do I think about Lou 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 Dobbs or whatever the Lou like Welch. random security <laughs> Lou Welch? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Why do I think so much about Lou Welch when he probably gets like two lines in the series? Sometimes you can make side characters interesting, or you can make their their backstory seem interesting by suggesting it. It's not by him going up to Garibaldi and being like, "Yes, sir. Thank you, sir." That's nothing. That isn't character development at all. Mm. But, you know, maybe having them say a particularly funny line or having them react to something uh, in a realistic way and not just, like, acknowledging that the plot happened and saying, yes, I thought that was good. You have to give them a personality of some sort, too, because Lou, we knew that he liked to eat greasy food. That was something. What does Nan have? That's his character. You don't need anything more or anything less. You know that that's what that's his relationship to his work. You know how he feels about his health and all that. Done. Bam. You made a character. It's not hard. Star Trek, you can do it. You've literally done it better than other people have done it. And that he's competent at his job. Nan, she's been here from the very beginning. It took them four or five episodes to even tell us what her name was because she literally had to walk in in the real world, walk in to a crew that's known her for weeks at this point and say, I'm Nan. Because they realize they never told us the audience. It's just bizarre. Like, this show has so many characters, even main characters, within this episode who we've known from the beginning. And where's their characterization? Who was Paul in this episode to you? Like, when you see Paul in the episode, what do you get from him as a character? Like, like who is this guy? I don't know. And I've been watching the show. I don't know who he is anymore. Like, he's, he's just 
like crumpling his eyebrows into the center of his head all the time and i'm supposed to understand who he is i don't know what he wants who he like what what's going on i don't know i don't know you um yeah you 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 spoke about that i think in a previous episode where it's just like you're telling me like uh, or no you had mentioned this in our private conversation uh how when i watched it when we both of us watched the show originally we're like i love paul i love tilly and now i look at them and i feel like i'm watching like I don't know. I'm watching like silhouettes of characters that I must have filled out in my head at the time. Mm. But there's nothing on the screen that makes me love Tilly. And if anything, I found her very frustrating in this episode. Like, she's supposed to be relatable. Yes, that works. She speaks like everyone else does. That doesn't really work. That's kind of awkward, actually, the way she does it. Um, but I I just feel like I filled in way more. It's like sometimes when I watch certain anime from my childhood and I'm like I remember this being so much more interesting and weird and there's barely anything on the screen and that's because you're a kid and you're like filling it out but this was like two years ago <laughs> like why at the time was I so willing to like just to, just make Tilly up in my head but now I look at her and I'm like who why are we you wanted it to be about, good like, gender and saying things are relatable and uh. yeah you wanted you wanted things to make sense in a way that is satisfying as do I Rachel we've talked about this a lot on the show but a lot of the defense of this show when we make critiques like this, I don't know this, I don't know that, is, oh, well, you can assume that these things are inferred in some way and that they happened off screen and that this is something you could just imagine up in your head. And that isn't an invalid idea. There are many shows that have things that aren't told to us directly or shown to us directly, but, but... you can imbue that yourself. Like Lou Welch as a character from yeah. Babylon 5. I don't know anything about him, but his demeanor, what they tell us little about him, I can imagine up a character of what that guy is. But there's a bigger jump between inferring, which is what we do with those shows, mm. and the assumption that you could infer from these five minuscule things, yes, which is what Discovery wants us to do. In Babylon 5, there are specific moments that you can point to and go, yep, Lou is doing that. That probably means that he does that. He's being referred to in this way. That means that he's like this. We see him actually do his job, so that means that he's he attends work. <laughs> like, you know, like, that kind of thing. But, like... There is something to go off definitive that makes it an inference, not an assumption of an inference. Yeah, and Discovery does that a lot of just, well, Hugh and Paul know each other. They're they're in love, so you know that they have just this wonderful relationship. Oh, what does it look like, though? Oh, we can't show you. We've got a toothbrushing scene. That shows you. That it? Okay, cool. So you should feel sad now, now that they're not on the same page. I didn't know that they ever had a page. We get to find out a lot about Culver. Who he is, what makes him tick, what he wants, what his ambitions are. Separate and apart from the relationship. But we get to learn a lot about this relationship and it's put through the test. I actually like things in this episode. This isn't just hate, hate, hate. There are things I actually like. I like this idea that the time traveler is like on this um, rubber band effect where they can only be here and then they get snapped back into where they came from. I like that as a time traveling idea. It's not one that I've seen used a lot in science fiction. So that in itself is exciting to see. But And they actually kind of set it up and show it and it gives us a greater understanding of why the Red Angel just doesn't stick around and have a chat and all of that. So it pays it off in that regard. But... They say to us, Michael, you are the red angel. Your DNA, it's 100%. Here you go. And we have to trap the time, uh, the angel, because it's you. 
So the only way to trap it is... Oh, and everybody has to watch you do this. Everyone has to watch you do this. But here's the plan. This planet down here has a base on it that has these things that we need. So we can set up stuff there. We need to kill you because you will save yourself because you are alive in the future. Now let's proceed to murder you. And Pike is like the only character in the entire crew that is like horrified at this notion what do you think of that idea of having to catch yourself from the future by trying to kill yourself in the past because you know you are alive in the future and they even bring up the air gray grandfather paradox grandfather paradox but the grayness of what happens if this doesn't work and i die what did you actually think of that as an idea and how it's actually executed in the show the idea is cool because, like, yes, there's the paradox, but I think a part of where it falls flat is how they try and ramp up the tension when, for me, at that stage, if I'm going with the script and actually thinking forward, there is Mm. no tension. Mm. Because, well, we've already seen these things happen. They haven't suggested that they will be reversing the effects. So it has to happen. Yeah. And they're making the tension about whether or not the Red Angel is going to appear. Where the tension should be, well, how long, like, how long can we wait? Yeah. Like, is this an ethical decision it should be more before rather than after is when the tension is built before the decision is made what about you alan what did you think of that aspect of the story it's honestly maybe i'm being cynical but that's what this episode has done to me it's it's like corrupting my my earnestness um it's an excuse to be like no you have to die and like Give us they we talk about like what are the stakes? Why should we care about these characters? And this is a reason. Is like wow, our main character could die, but it's our protagonist, you guys. Like what? What are you doing? <laughs> Was Burnham gonna come out of this dead? No, that's not how TV works. So you are that cynical thing where you're thinking of like how I did with Arium in the last episode, where it's like oh, you're focusing an episode on her, she's gonna die. Well, this is the opposite of well, she's the main character. There are no stakes. She can't die. And also the logic that Rachel bestowed just a moment ago in minor part is. Well, we know that everything works out, so there's no actual tension here because we know that Michael will survive to be the Red Angel. Not just us, the audience, but them in the show. They're like, Michael, you're the Red Angel. You're going to come here. So what's the tension there of, well, you could die because they don't actually explore where that tension could come from because they all 100% believe and tell us for 100% of fact that Michael is the Red Angel. So what's the tension coming from other than just the minor, well, what happens if this doesn't work? Well, just that sentiment is there, but where's, like, scientifically speaking and, and thematically and just episode-wise, where's that coming from other than just that minor basic instinct of I don't want to die? There is none. Because they tell us 100% factually, this is what it is, this is how it's going to work, we're going to do it, this, 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 this. There's never any room for doubt. And when there is, it's this type of doubt in which it's like, okay, well, what's the logic that builds that doubt to be a viable case? Oh, there is none. Because a lot of the show doesn't have what Star Trek, Babylon 5, uh, Battlestar Galacta, a lot of sci-fi, which is that ambiguity of of a scene and of an idea of, well... 
if you do this, there's a possibility of this thing happening. It's always, well, we're going to do this. It should be fine. So we have Michael strapped to a chair. Spock pulls a phaser and he's like, no, bitch, she's got to die. And I'm sitting there going, why am he I supposed to? He commits mutiny. Well, he is. He's, he, they're, they're, like, they're like, if this plan works and she's going to die, like we have to stop her. And he's like, I believe that is the point. <laughs> like, yes. yes. Oxygen is down to 42%. If I don't get to her, she'll die. Yes, doctor. That is the idea. Ryan, Rachel, there's a character moment in this episode that uh, <laughs> frustrated me so much. And I mentioned it to Ryan yesterday. Yes. Um, and I need to talk about it. I can't not talk about it anymore because we've like circled around it like like vultures. Yes, go on. Uh, jo- Mirror Universe Joy Joe is in this episode. Can you remind me, first of all, why she's on the ship? She works for Section 31 now? She works for Section 31 because they took her from the Mirror Universe against her own will, so they have a responsibility for her because she's so smart and evil, they can't let her go rogue, but they can't let her work in the Federation, so the only logical place to put her is Section 31, in which her devious way of approaching things, which is often commit genocide, would be beneficial to Section 31 since they operate outside Of the rules. And Section 31 has been working kind of alongside, but also somewhat against Discovery in the quest to find the Red Angel. And this episode reveals that why they're doing that too is because the Red Angel suit is technology that they made, so this problem is because of Section 31 to begin with. Okay, so so she's on the ship, and the show's saying, okay, we're sorry about all the exposition. Here's a funny, wacky character moment. (laughs) She's talking to Paul Stamets. And she's being clearly very flirtatious with him. And threatening. Uh, and threatening, which is a very de- a wonderful combo, right? Flirtatious and threatening. Um, we've seen that done better in every other show in the universe. Uh, she's supposed to be this, like, you know, it's a common trope in media uh, to do the, like, evil bisexual or, like, the evil queer person, right? Star Trek's done it many times before. Star- yeah, Star Trek's literally done it before. Um, it's super common. It's as old as time. So she is flirting with Paul to the point where... Uh, uh, Hugh comes by and is like, you realize, or somebody else comes by and is like, you realize he's gay, right? Mm-hmm. Or he says, you realize I'm gay, right? And then she says, in my universe, you're pansexual. And it's this moment, and I love, I fucking am embarrassed to say that there's a, mo- a line on the Star Trek wiki that's like, this episode is the first Star Trek in production to use specific terms for sexual orientations. The words gay and pansexual have never been said in Star Trek before now. This sucks as a queer person, to see this moment yep. where she's like, no, but in my universe, you understand that sexuality is fluid and you know that gay is limiting because don't think so binary, <sighs> Paul. And then just to twist the knife, I'm allowed to be on this. I feel like I'm okay to be on this podium for a sec. Uh, she twists the knife. She turns to Hugh and fucking calls him Poppy as if to suggest that the three of them have like a, a love harem in her universe, yes. which is so skin crawly. And like, she's supposed to suck. Like if your comment is like, well, she's in it. She's a bad person. I d- this just is like borderline offensive to just be like, well, in my universe, you're actually, you're smarter than that. And you know that you're, it's, like a reversal of the whole you don't you think you're gay but you're not it's like you think you're gay but you're actually pansexual is kind of equally bad like it's not it's not cool to <laughs> and, say and that they, guys. They, they do this problem a lot in star trek um george takei had an issue in the past with them making sulu in star trek beyond gay he has like a uh, you know because the only reason they made their character gay is because he the actor is gay and he is, yeah. did not like that because Sulu wasn't gay he he wasn't in the original series and the issue that comes up with this and that one is their alternative mirror universes or whatever but 
it's that thing of one, well, in the other universe, you're gay, which is always a weird thing. And it's like, well, what are the rules? Because it's like, oh, is Sulu only gay in that universe because uh, because Kirk's dad died? So that made him gay in the weird <laughs> yeah, that, cosmic thing? Yeah, is that thing? difference the thing that made him gay? Like, and, is that how the butterfly effect works? And that's the thing when you have the mirror universe. It's like, oh, well, because they're all evil, that means they're sexually deviant. And sexually deviant means you don't, you're not heteronormative. Which, again... That's fraught. That's fucking fraught right there. <laughs> and that's fraught. But, again, it's just to tie back to a show... disturbing when you actually think about it. Because yeah. we are yeah. led to believe, and we are shown, that... Terrans are fascists. Are, are fascists. <laughs> she refers to herself as totalitarian in yes, this episode. She actually. does. Um, everything that they do is bad, and Terrans, by their nature, by their DNA, in according the third season, to season three, are evil. Are evil, and they are saying by virtue of that that understanding sexuality as being non-binary. And that fluid and, and, and yeah. fluid is He's associated evil. with it. It's- Here's the thing that annoys me. In Star Trek Deep Space Nine, they do the exact same kind of thing where Major Kira, the normal one, she's a real stick in the mud. And then the evil one, she's like an evil princess who wants to fuck herself. And <laughs> she fucks everything. Goals. And you could oh, say that's okay. the same thing, right? And she openly has sex slaves, and she's, like, outright evil. What makes that one less annoying, though, but still problematic, because it was the 90s, she's at least funny. Giorgio's not funny. Like, at the end of the day, humor is subjective, but did you find that scene genuinely funny because it's supposed to be funny? It's not supposed to be a serious scene. We're not supposed to take what she's saying about, you know, queer identity and all that seriously, we're supposed to take that scene as a whole entire joke. But there's did you also... find did you, did you find that scene at all funny, Alan? No, absolutely not. This is another thing where they want the fans to do the, the legwork of filling out the character, um, because you can. Because I'm sure there are some some disco fans who are like, Giorgio is a is a queer icon, like, and none of you get it or whatever. And it's like, there's nothing on the page, guys. There's nothing on the page except her making this joke. Like, what are you? What are you saying? What is this character? Why is she saying this? Why does she feel she feels confident enough to say this? She thinks it's okay. She's an asshole. We're supposed to hate her here. Cause- but also a part of that thing, her whole shtick in that scene is learn to be uncomfortable. Learn to revel in being uncomfortable. And a part of it too is, well, you guys, you're thinking too small. You've got to think bigger. And that's an example, because the whole thing is they're having issues. There's multiple things. They're having issues figuring out how to solve this Red Angel situation. Hugh and Paul are having issues with their relationship. Tilly's having issues with her dynamic, with their dynamics going on. And so it's a way of saying, as an umbrella term, by using this weird pansexual comment of hers, of, you guys are thinking too personally and too small. Think bigger and larger and outside of yourselves. Don't think so binary. And that isn't necessarily a bad idea, but the way that they go about it, it's like, why, if, as you said, Alan, this is the first time that they've outright said these terms, why is it that that's the moment in which the scene is played for a piss take? Like, if you're going to make it the first time that they're actively going to do it, 
If you're going to make it the first time they're actively going to say it and do it and whatever, why in a show that's banded 50 years is it in a scene in which the scene ends with a character going, what the hell just happened because it was so nonsensical and it was supposed to be funny? Mm-hmm. That, that, that's, what, that's what really sucks is that this is the first time they've ever done it and it happens to be this like weird joke and... Yeah, it's trying to say, like you said, you're, you're you're suggesting Ryan that oh, it's the future. It's I, I um in college I read H. G. Wells as the Time Machine, and one of the aspects of that book that I actually really liked that holds up well and what, that stuck with me was when he goes to the future and it's like oh, everybody here just like threw threw off the shackles of gender and sexuality, and everybody is non-binary and and has like all sorts of genitals, and no one cares anymore. That's fine, and that's it. And he's just like, all right, cool. I guess you guys figured it out, and we've all been, we're going to keep spinning the drain while you guys figured it out. The, and Star Trek is trying to say that, finally. Like, Star Trek, at its core as a franchise, should be about, like, the hope for the future, what we can work strive towards, and the messiness it takes to get there. But instead, you gave the moment of, like, espousing the pansexual worldview to your, like, villainous mirror universe genocide woman? Terrible. Honestly, very, very frustrating, and, and I was super pissed off by that scene. And here's the thing, too. You said that, oh, Giorgio's supposed to be a bad person, but in this episode, they so many times give her this, well, her and Michael, she's actually she's actually good, and oh, she didn't want to take the story away from Leland. It was his story to tell, and it's like... She did genocide. She did, she did genocide, guys. Well, well here's, a, no. here's, a, <laughs> here's a comparison point in two ways. Deep space. We haven't actually talked about Giorgio in this manner, but it always annoys me. They set up Giorgio to such a high level of evil that it is almost impossible to have any form of good narratively be satisfying. Like any form of actual redemption for a character that's worse than Hitler themselves, it's hard to redeem them or have any form of good within them. There have been other characters in media that have been fascists and or outright evil that you could gleam something from because they weren't at that level. Mr. Bester from Babylon 5 is a despicable person who believes in a superior race, and the show does not even try to make you love him, but they do make you like him in terms of you enjoy seeing him on the show, because you know that he believes 100% in himself, and we know that that's bad, but they have fun making fun of him and how pathetic he is. While, meanwhile, in Deep Space Nine, the lead antagonist was a guy who occupied another species believes himself to be a good man because he tried to minimize the genocides and he tried to minimize the violence but he still did it and he he tried to maximize the rape though and that's the thing in that show deep space nine gold to cut they always have those moments in which they bring up that he had sex with bajorans and he likes having sex with bajorans and at first it's like in this scene where it's kind of played a little bit like, oh, that's kind of a little dark and a little funny. But as the show kept going, it kept nailing down, no, no, guys, he's a rapist. And he's a Nazi. And that's bad. And he wasn't at the level she is, where she literally eats a species that she finds (laughs) genetically impure in comparison to her. And she still wishes that she could eat Saru. And yet, in a scene like this, where it's supposed to be funny... We're supposed to be like, oh, that jolly old scamp, Giorgio. She's a fascist, an outright fascist in a show that has always said the number one enemy ideologically wise is fascism. And yet we're supposed to find fascism fun and sexy. I've never seen a show turn so against in that way. Like Star Trek, 
they always make the joke of Star Trek. The enemy is em- uh, Groppler Zorn, and he has a laser. No, no, the enemy is always is most all most of the time always f- uh, some variant of fascism. Now, all these decades later, in a world in which Trump America exists, which the show wants to point at, they also have a character who's a literal fascist, and they say, "Oh, but isn't she sassy and sexy and fun?" And doesn't her viewpoint actually offer stuff? It's like, no? No thanks? (laughs) It's one of the most embarrassing scenes. It made my sister quit watching Discovery, that scene. (laughs) My sister loved Discovery, but for some reason, season two, there were some bumps along the way she didn't care for. But this episode, she outright just stopped and she's never engaged with any other new Star Trek show ever again. And she always points to this scene that we've brought up as the example of what what was what were they trying to do? And here's the question. What did that scene actually serve to the purpose of the episode? Did it actually spark off anyone's ideas of how to solve the problem? No. Um, you, you do know that he's gay, right? Don't be so binary. In my universe, he was pansexual. And we had DEFCON level fun together. And you too, Poppy. Did you just call me Poppy? I want to bring up something. And I don't know how you guys feel about this, but... In TV shows, let's just talk about TV shows, characters, whether they be your heroes or your villains, get punished. Physically, narratively, Ash Tyler, he's getting punished over here, like him and her can't get together because all of this stuff between them, whatever. When is it too much? Because in this episode, I felt that it was cruel to a lot of its characters. Like, I don't like Michael Burnham, but I have... I have, like, and Star Trek's filled with cruelty and horrible imagery to its main characters, but I think the image of Michael Burnham being forced, like, being strapped down to a chair and her skin burning off of her face and her screaming in agony and choking to death is one of the most mean-spirited, cruel things I've ever seen a main character get inflicted upon them. What do you think, Rachel? I think it was ridiculous that that they forced the crew essentially to watch Michael be tortured and die. Like, but the thing is, she wants it, right? Like, so so it's okay. And the only person who pipes up... No, no, because she's... They they think that that is... No, no, no. but it is in the narrative. Like, Spock goes, she's not shaking her head. No, she's shaking her head. Like, don't let them interrupt. But it is still her being tortured and dying. The reasons behind it, I understand. But I do not think that that was an appropriate decision to submit the crew to that kind of trauma. They, (sighs) like, it, it... no, they didn't need that on screen, they, and they didn't need the audio. What do you think about this, Alan? We live in a world in which TV can be very mean to its characters and punish them and put them through lots of physical challenges and mental ones that are very harmful. What do you think about this episode and, and that particular moment? Were there moments in this episode and that one where you just go, wow, this is just too much, or did it work and make sense i mean i can try to be a little bit more more positive here i i know you can compare the show this this moment similarly to like uh you know that arc of babylon 5 where uh sheridan is like being interrogated yeah um and it's like oh the punishment is important because it shows that he's like learning and he knows that he's at fault and he's not a perfect person um we need to take our, our main characters down a peg every once in a while but this is just like violence for the sake of it 
Um, I've seen crit- positive critique of this episode, uh, reviews of this episode that really like it, mm. that mention that this moment is good, and especially the reveal being good, not just the punishment, the reveal that it's her mother, as like, oh, the twist is now about family. And it's like, I've never met her mom before. I don't know why I should care about it being her mom other than like, I also care about my mother. <laughs> I'm a human being who has a mother. That's Martha. cool, I guess. Oh, yeah, it's a Martha principle from Batman v Superman. Yes, yes. Just because you said, like, that's my mom and that's your mom. Both of our moms are named Martha doesn't mean anything. <laughs> we both have moms. But that makes us both humans. Any fellas out of. there with moms, shout outs. Like, what? This just, to me, it's just so weird in a show that has paraded itself around by being like, look how wonderful we are. We're doing something Star Trek disco- uh, Star Trek has never done before. We're going to have a uh, character be le- uh, crew be led by a a black woman. Isn't that wonderful? And she's a strong character and you know she inspired Spock to be him and she's she makes mistakes but she learns from them and it's like all this great stuff on paper and you're like, "Yes, yes." But also, we're just going to strap her down to a chair. And you're going to watch her skin burn off her face and her bleed everywhere and cry in agony. And everyone's just going to stand there and watch. Is Hugh going to actually try and save her because he, he has such strong convictions as a doctor? No, because Spock pulled a phaser on him. Okay. I remember in Star Trek, the original series, Bones had a knife, uh, a, a scalpel to his throat. And he said, well, cut me like this if you're going to kill me. But if not, I'm going to try and save your life. Because he had convictions as a doctor. Nobody has convictions in this. Like, I'm watching this, and I know that they want to capture the angel, and, oh, we want the twist. But it's like, I cannot believe what a horrifying image it actually is. Like, I know Star Trek's filled with horrifying images. Like, Neelix gets his lungs taken from him. But that whole episode, they tried to save Neelix and get his lungs back. This, it's like, for two whole minutes, you're watching her just scream in pain and agony and she's just fucking dying and it's like I get that you want to be a dark show and all that but there's sometimes where you just go it's just plain old cruel for cruelty's sake like I know that they have to kill her but what there's no other there's no humane way to do it there's no scientifically more delicate way to do it like they didn't specify that she had to die in a way that was like agonizing so the red angel could come it was just that you have to die yeah and they just decide to use what's on the planet but they're i didn't think about that because they just brush past it as like this is the only way that we can do it because like spock and burnham said it was go to pike and say this is the way that we have to do it but it's just like, well, why couldn't it be medical intervention? And oh. and Hugh is right there, oh, because be- ready ready to pull her back. Because I would give Hugh something to do. Oh yeah, that's right. Outside of his relationship drama, that would actually show that Hugh as a doctor, and, and we can't seeking- do that. Mm. We can't do that outside of him just saying the test results came in, Michael, and you're the red angel. That's all he can do. Yeah, That's all he's allowed to do he's medically. He's only allowed to refer to neural wild cards. Sorry, I forgot. That's And that's the reason. I think it's one of the most cruel things that the show's ever done to its characters. And I hate Michael as a character. I do not like her. But I did not... I don't want to see this happen to her either. Like, like she's... I, I don't know. It's just pointless and cruel. And then it's like you said, Alan... The reveal is, it's her mother. And at first, I thought that was great, because I was like, I, you know what, 
I didn't expect that, but also makes sense a little bit genetically. And they they set up her mother in this episode, and they've set her up before, like, oh, we thought she died and this and this, but then you set up, oh, she made a time travel suit. Well, it makes sense she could have time traveled out and whatever, but at the same time, why should I care that it's her mum? Because I don't know anything about her mum. Like, I don't need to have met her mum, but we've never given been given stories about her mother being this great person who did this, this, and this, or said this, this, and this. There were episodes of Babylon 5 in which I didn't, I, I didn't get to meet Sheridan's dad, but I felt like I knew him because I told stories about him that reflected on the themes of the episode. Like, Sheridan's and dad... We, we see him in a conversation out. occasionally. Yeah, no, but more importantly, there's a scene in Babylon 5 where it's like, Sheridan talks about like, oh, I needed to... I couldn't fall asleep because, I, you know, what helps me fall asleep is rain on the tin roof. And what does his dad do? His dad goes out there, grabs a hose, and sprays the roof. It gives me an understanding of who his dad was. So that later in the show, when they threaten to kill Sheridan's dad, I actually feel worried about his dad because I know he's a good guy. In this, I don't know anything about Michael's mother other than they tell us in this episode she was also a hell of an engineer. Did you know that, Alan? I I do now because you told me. Thank you, Info Dump episode. My parents were scientists. My father was a xenoanthropologist. My mother was an astrophysicist. They wouldn't have been involved in Section 31. She was also an engineer. A brilliant one. I think it's time for the Hugh Da. Hugh Da alert. Hugh had stuff to do in this episode. Alan... What is your thoughts on Hugh as a character? And what were your thoughts when you originally watched the show about Hugh? Because you you talked about earlier, you know, uh, the queer aspect of the show was definitely something that drew you in a little bit. And Hugh was definitely one of the bait and hooks of that in the first season and this season as well. What do you think about uh, Dr. Hugh Colber? So I didn't keep up too much with the promotional like interviews and materials with this series as it was coming out. Mm. But it's pretty damning whenever you guys post, you do a clip in the episode of like, I don't know where you're getting them from, but like showrunners and stuff saying like, we're not going to give up on Hugh and, and, uh, and his boyfriend. Like they're going to, Hugh and Paul are going to be come back. We would never kill our gays. We know that's a harmful trope guys. And then they do. And then they come back and they do nothing with him. So it feels like Either the truth of the matter is that the show's production is such a mess that there are people with good intentions getting talked over. Mm. That's my likely guess. Um, or just they're putting the hand. I don't know. Like they're just not. They're just not doing anything with this guy. What's his deal? What's his? I am a huge, a huge sucker for doctors on sci-fi shows. You guys know that. Oh yeah. Um, every time there's a doctor on a, on a show, I love all the Star Trek doctors. I love it. Uh, I love the Babylon Five. Do- I, I love Babylon Five Doctor. I love Farscape Doctor. Like, just doctors are cool. They ha- it's an interesting profession. It makes you very empathetic. It makes you know understand people really better, really well. Do we do any of that with Hugh? Absolutely not. He is there to talk to Paul, and that's basically it. Does anyone else know him? Are they friends with him? Not really. He gets to talk to the Admiral this episode. Alan, although Hugh didn't get a lot to do the first season round. This season round, the whole thing is he's resurrected from the dead and he has an existential crisis because this episode deals with a lot too of, I know I should love the people around me and I know I should be wanting to be a doctor because that's who I am. But at the same time, I literally died and this body that I'm in is not a, is not the original Basically, I'm not Hugh. I'm having an existential crisis about that. But Ryan... That is... Wait, hold on. That is... Like... 
sci-fi-wise, isn't that an interesting idea to put upon one of your main characters? Why isn't it executed in an interesting way for you, Alan? The show spends so much of its runtime on the mystery. This is it, right? This is the ultimate critique of Star Trek Discovery. I know I don't, I'm not trying to like shut down the conversation, but it's ultimately when you put all the in the time and the devotion and the dedication to the mystery and the visual and the and the like, you know, the questions and not the themes and not the characters and not the the sense of it all, then you can go an entire season with and go, who's Hugh? What's his deal? You can go two seasons. You can go from him dying and getting resurrected, resurrected, and still go. I don't think I know who Hugh is. <laughs> It's about the mystery box, not the hands that are opening it. But J.J. Abrams, this is why I always was frustrated when people said, like, Lost was fr- was bad because it, its ending was, like, complete nonsense and answer the questions. It was always about the characters. It was always... Yeah. That's, that's what... If you actually watch the TED Talk that, like, J.J. Abrams introduced the concept of the mystery box, part of the thing he says is, like, you can't just have the mystery box. You have to have a reason to want to open it, be that character motivation yeah. or relating to a character or... Something beyond just like, okay, here's a box. It's got something in it. And I go, what's in it? And you don't tell me. Okay, I don't want to know. But here's the (laughs) difference, though, between Lost. A show that I absolutely do not like. I do not like Lost. But you said it. Character. But here's the thing. With J.J. Abrams and Alex Kurtzman and crew, they still don't understand that thing that you just said. Because when I've, I've watched and listened to people talk about Lost to try and understand it, and the guy who actually writes Lost, who's not J.J. Abrams, J.J. Abrams contributed, but most of the time it's J.J. Abrams wanted this thing. Oh, well, how? Do, what is that? And J.J. just says, I don't know, figure it out. While the guy who created Lost actually cared enough to want to try and figure things out and put characters in, but J.J., he just wants it. And this show, it's like, well, we want to have a gay couple on the show. Okay, cool. Are we going to do anything with them? No. But I want to kill one of them so that the other one's sad. Oh, well, wouldn't that be bad? <laughs> That's character development to me. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be bad? Oh, I guess so. Resurrect him. Okay. Well, if we, res- Why? if we resurrect him, how are we going to make the audience care about him as a character because we didn't get to know him before he died? Oh, he has an existential crisis about himself. But wait a moment. Wouldn't it be more engaging as a viewer to watch a character have a crisis of their identity if we knew their identity before? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he's uh, wearing the show a suit. tomorrow. Uh, he's wearing a suit. Uh, because, yeah. again, this similar idea happened in Babylon 5. Again, keep referring back to Babylon 5. There's a whole season in which Mr. Garibaldi is not himself. And we actually cared as an audience because we knew who he was. And we knew that there was something wrong. And we were invested because we liked him and now we weren't liking him or people around him didn't understand who he was. This is the exact, like, this is pretty much a similar idea of Hugh doesn't know who he is. People don't know who he is. Nobody knows. But that's sad for the audience because we knew who he was, but we didn't know who Hugh was. So when Hugh walks up to the Admiral character, Rachel, how did you feel about it? Because the Admiral never knew who Hugh was. Literally, she never interacted with him, really. And then he walks up to him and he's like, hey, you're, you're a therapist. Tell me what's wrong with me and fix me, please. Yeah, and he appears in other scenes. Looking for her. <laughs> looking for her. That is his journey on this episode is to seek out a non-practicing therapist to get advice on his relationship yeah and she just says well you know what 
your experience transcends everything we know about identity, so you you just got to walk your own path. Good luck. And, you know, love is not one decision, but... Multiple. Many decisions. And it's just like, well, yeah, I guess all of those things are true. I guess the Admiral feels that. And I guess that kind of makes sense. But also, I don't care about either of you, and I don't trust that this is going to matter at all. Not not just in the next episode. But ever. B- but ever again. And to get into season three, to spoil things for season three, in season three, Hugh actually has a character. He doesn't get a lot to do, but he actually has a character. To the point in which they make jokes about the fact that he died and had an existential crisis as if they recognized that this journey was futile. And to the point in which if you watch that season... You would have no idea if you had not watched the others that this character had any existential crisis at all. Because I find it annoying in TV shows when a character has an existential crisis and then they resolve it by the end of the season and it's like it never happened. And it's like, again, keep referring back to DS9 and Babylon 5. They did that shit well. DS9 had a character that lost a leg. It wasn't just like, oh, at the end of the episode he was sad. That kept recurring as a thing that that character suffered. And same with Babylon 5. There's a, you know, Michael Garibaldi. He had a whole identity crisis in season 4. What does it lead to in season 5? He's recurring alcoholism again. It had Make consequences. It matter. It had consequences. It had setups and payoffs and ramifications of your characters. Hugh, you snap his neck in season 1. What's the actual ramification? Oh, we've got to bring him back. That's really it. And this identity crisis with the therapist scene... I actually thought that this was probably the best scene in the whole episode, but then I had to keep reminding myself of, but I don't know who Hugh is. But I like the sentiment that they were having with one another. I actually liked the dialogue. I actually liked her advice. I actually liked what was being said, but I kept having to remind myself, but I don't know who he is. But uh, it, it does appear that Saru was correct. He had his fight with Ash, <laughs> and now that anger is gone, and we've moved on. Love is a choice. Hugh, and one doesn't just make that choice once, one makes it again and again. What would you rate this episode, Alan? Would you rate this a yum or yum yum? Yum being good and yum, I mean, yum being bad and yum yum being good. Uh, that's a really tough one, Ryan, and I'm glad you asked. It's a yum. Are you kidding me? It's absolutely a yum. What pushes it over that line? All of it. The start credits and the end credits. Remember when he said he was going to be the positive one this episode? <laughs> yeah. It was really funny. I tried. It's just that, the, the, I don't know, maybe your format's very different than mine, but at some point I'm just like, where am I? <laughs> I'm like lost in, an, in the ocean. When you actually think about it, all of these yeah. things bubble up. <sighs> because yeah. your show, you cover television shows with very format, very, very strong structured formats to an episode where A plus B plus C equals D. This is like D is before A, and A is under B, and C is not actually on the table. That's next episode. Well, this is kind of like, like you said, there's a whole 30 minutes in like, what happened there? Just stuff happened, but nothing registered. I give this one a yum. Rachel, what about you? Oh, it's a yum. Yum. Uh, Alan. Yes, hello. 
I, I've got a question for you. You said you've stopped watching Star Trek Discovery. You have no interest in it. Probably you don't have any interest in Star Trek Picard or other Star Treks, maybe Lower Decks, because that seems different. But coming back to it, even though it's for this one episode, that's kind of like, you know, finding like a random nugget in the sea and being like, what is this? Um, do you think with what these characters are, because you, like you said, it comes down to the characters, do you think that that sentiment of, well, give it a couple seasons, it'll find its feet, do you think that could actually apply to this show? Do you think that this could be saved or salvaged or transformed into what we consider to be a well-made, competent show? You can make a good mystery show. You cannot. You can't. You can't course correct this to a good Star Trek show. You'd have to re- rejigger the entire format of it, mm. um, which is is their fault. Like they made, they chose to make a mystery show, and you can make a good one of those. But just give me some character focus. Maybe it's not. It's not designed for this like ten to fifteen episode season. Maybe it needs a twenty episode season uh, to really give me some. I need filler. I usually like this is a show with basically no quote unquote filler the way mm. we traditionally think about that word. Yeah, give me time to sit with these characters. Let me sit on the Discovery and appreciate what the ship feels like and looks like. Besides the fucking bridge that I'm so sick of seeing, and the CGI nightmare. Yeah, I'll pass on all of the fluff that they give us instead. The fluff that they give us in this is not fluff that Alan is talking yeah, about. That's not the, that's not good fluff. There's good fluff. There's good filler. This is not it. I want. I want to sit down. I want to know what these characters think. That's why I like short treks and I liked y'all's your coverage of the short treks. It was like, oh. We're not going anywhere. This is just it. This is the story. Okay, great. I like these. Yeah, I think that this world works better with the short trek format, but uh, it's a thing that I was just curious of because obviously we have our viewpoint that we've discussed many times on the pod, but someone like you who's as an outsider viewpoint, you aren't as tied to Star Trek and all of that, and you analyze television as well. I was just curious of if there is that thing of how long, how many seasons, how many episodes does a show have to go on for until you can say the promise is never going to be fulfilled? And I was curious because there's that thing where there's so much promise in Star Trek Discovery to me. But it's like, how many seasons? How many episodes? How many wasted character arcs? How many wasted character developments? How many wasted actors? How many wasted production members have to be? How many showrunners? have to be rinsed through until it is fulfilled the promise that I want from it. I don't know. I think I think the audience has to have a satisfying experience of the season. I think they have to feel it's come full circle and that they've had an arc. I think I think it, it, it hovers around two seasons. That's why I was like, oh maybe if they like re reconfigure Discovery for season three it'll be really good. And then I heard from Al that it is not. So. <laughs> it's some people think it's the best season, but they say that about every season. Oh. So. Yet on IMDb, it has primarily the lowest rated episodes consistently. Whatever, that's IMDb. Talking about episodes, Alan, could you please inform us all on what episode we'll have to talk about, Rachel and I, next time? Next time on Yum Yum Track, Ryan and Rachel will be covering Perpetual Infinity. (laughs) Uh, And the summary from IMDb goes as follows. Burnham receives the reunion that she has been looking for, but it doesn't go quite as she imagined. Giorgio and Tyler sense a disturbing change in Leland, which suggests that he's going to grow tentacles. (laughs) Oh, we didn't even mention that Leland got assimilated by control in this because it was so, like, nonchalantly done. I didn't care. (laughs) Oh, he totally did. Yep. (laughs) And that's that's the description? 
Mm-hmm. That's the description. I'm 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 keen, Rachel, because more Giorgio means more fun, 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 fun. Alan, where can people find your show, and what socials do you have? Um, I don't really use my. I, I have a personal Twitter, but I don't like to plug it because it, Twitter is hell, and I don't <laughs> need followers. Um, I do want people to check out Chats a Television Podcast again. That's C H A T Z colon a Television Podcast. Uh, we also have a Patreon call at patreon.com slash chatspod. C-H-A-T-Z-P-O-D is the way you spell that. Check it out if you want more TV discussion. And uh, sometimes we talk about good shows on there. <laughs> sometimes we talk about bad shows. We're talking about Studio 60 in 2021. So that'll be an adventure. That'll be something. So yeah, check check those guys out. I would have loved to have Magellan on, but he doesn't know anything of Star Trek. So it would be weird to just throw him in and do a random one like oh, this. Oh, God, yeah. He's a young Star Trek baby. I, I Although... I would love to have just thrown him into one of these nonsense episodes and go, please describe the plot. And why yeah, I tell him what happened. <laughs> but yeah, you guys are great. Um, check them out. Great, great show. Great dynamics. Great discussions on episodes. Uh, things that I've been like, come on, guys. That's June Lockhart. And you're like, who's this old lady? And I'm like, it's June Lockhart from Lost in Space and Lassie. Um, Rachel, a pleasure as always. Uh, to be discussing Star Trek with you. Uh, where can our listening folk find us and support us and email us at? Well, they can email us at yumyumpod at gmail.com and find us on most social medias and also on Patreon with yumyumpod. There you go. So do that, uh, good folk out there. Uh, to wrap up this episode... Yes, Rachel? You have an idea? Sorry. I've got to go deal with a digital parasite. (laughs) That was a line of dialogue. (laughs) That was a line of dialogue in this episode. I've got to go deal with it. Sorry. 